Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a message from our sermon series in Isaiah. As we sing of Christ's great work in us and as we rejoice together at, those, at the baptism and Christ's redeeming work in the life of our brother and of our sister, we want to see and experience the promise of Christ in the book of Isaiah chapter 2. And Before we read the word together, let's pray. Our Lord God and our Savior, as we open your word now, Make us aware that we hasten toward a day when earthly pleasures and pursuits will all appear vain. It will not matter on that great day whether we were rich or poor, admired or despised, healthy or sick. But on that day, this will matter. Did we mourn over sin? Did we hunger and thirst for you? And did we cry out, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me? a sinner. In this moment, set our eyes on that coming day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Isaiah chapter 2. I'll read from verse 1 down through verse 11. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. And they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses. There's no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. As we begin this prophetic section of the book of Isaiah, after that little introduction in verse 1, the first thing it says in verse 2 is, it shall come to pass in the latter days, in the last days. This is a very common phrase in the Old Testament prophets. Jesus picks it up and Jesus' apostles pick it up in the New Testament. And the church is always wondering, When are the last days and what does it mean in the latter days? It's a prophetic phrase that looks forward to the future. When we are in the Old Testament, 
It means usually one of two things. When we're in the Old Testament, we're looking forward to the first coming of Christ or we're looking forward to the second coming of Christ. When we're in the New Testament and we find the phrase in the last days, we're looking forward from the day when Christ ascended on through till his second coming. But sometimes it's hard to figure out exactly in the Old Testament, is Isaiah talking about the first coming of Jesus or the second coming of Jesus? It's like looking at the mountains. I didn't grow up in Wisconsin, though Wisconsin is my home through and through. Uh, I grew up in Southern California in the San Fernando Valley, surrounded by those Santa Ana foothills. And then from there, I was a youth pastor for several years in Washington State. And when we moved here from Washington State, besides the people in the church, I think what I missed most was the mountains. Something awesome about looking at mountains. And we don't have any in Wisconsin. But when you're looking at a mountain range, you see a peak, and then right behind that peak, you see another mountain peak. And they look so close. But if you were to go from your vantage point to actually scale that first peak, when you were at the top of that first peak, it might take you two months to climb down that peak through the valley in between and back up the next mountain. And this is how Isaiah's prophecy is. He speaks of the first coming, the second coming, and it's sometimes difficult to, from our vantage point, to see, well, there really were 2,000 or 3,000 or whatever number of years between those two things. That happens a lot in all of the Old Testament prophets, and Isaiah is no exception to that. So I want to look together this morning at this prophecy in Isaiah 2. And first, we're just going to consider what is prophecy as a promise of what shall be. If you look with me again at verse 2, look at the first line. In the ESV, it says, it shall come to pass in the latter days. Can I just break those two phrases apart for you and say, this is the whole point of walking by faith. It shall come to pass. It is certain God has promised. It shall come to pass in the latter days. That is, it has not happened yet. So either you have faith that it is a surety that it shall happen or you don't. Either you believe the word of God or you don't. But those two phrases balanced together show us what it means to live in hope and to live in sure faith when we're talking about biblical prophecy. Church, remember that. Remember that. When the news cycle freaks you out, when your next medical appointment causes you to lose sleep, remember that. It shall come to pass in the latter days. We interpret this text, specifically verses 1 through 4, as referring to the second coming of Christ in what's called the millennial reign, or after the, after the time of Jacob's trouble when he finally lands on that mountain in Jerusalem and he will reign there for a thousand years. We take that as the fulfillment of, well, Genesis 12, uh, Genesis 22, and then so many prophecies, prophecies throughout the Old Testament are these promises of the Savior reigning from this mountain and from Jerusalem. They're culminated in the book of Revelation in chapter 20. And different people take this different ways because there is symbolic language in Revelation. But we take it here as saying that Christ will return to Jerusalem and that he will reign for a thousand years. 
It says in Revelation 20, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who's the devil and Satan, and he bound him for 1,000 years and threw him into the pit and shut and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the 1,000 years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom was given authority to judge. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead or their hand. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power. They will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for 1,000 years. We take this as one of the singular uh, prophecies in the Old Testament, Isaiah 2, that is fulfilled there in Revelation 20. How does this hope transform us here and now? Well, you can't read Isaiah 2 verse 4 about the swords being beat into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks and nation not learning war anymore today without seeing the images that we've seen out of Ukraine, the aggression of Russia. But how does this hope help us to handle the news of the day? Isaiah 2 reminds me of one of my very favorite Psalms. If you'd let me show you one more place in God's word, it's Psalm 46 the old 46th. Amy and I, we memorized this psalm one time in our lives when there were things in our life that we were afraid of. We memorized this psalm. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help. Man, that he dropped that very in there, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge, Selah. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolation on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariot with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Isaiah said that the the, the swords will be beaten into farm implements. The psalmist says that God will break the bow and shatter the spear and burn the chariot with fire. The chariot is an implement of war or it was an ox cart used to move munitions and men and God will destroy them all. It says that God will bring to desolation all the proud plans of man to harm his fellow man. I'm here to tell you, church, from Isaiah... I'm here to tell you, church, from Revelation. I'm here this morning to tell you from Psalm 46 
that a day is coming when the last bullet will be fired. A day is coming when the last tank will roll over an international boundary line into another country with hostile intent. A day is coming when the last 11-year-old girl will be sold into sex slavery. A day is coming when the last set of parents will weep over their prodigal daughter or son. A day is coming when the last lonely widow who is neglected and mistreated by her greedy family will be lonely no more. That day is coming. And in light of that day, this psalm says, be still and know. Be still and know that I am God. The prophet Isaiah calls us to live today in light of that day. That's what prophecy is. We can have eyes of vision to see beyond from uh, it shall be in the latter days. If your hope is in what human beings can do, you should have no hope. If your hope is in what the United States of America and the United Nations can do to fix the globe, you should have no hope. If your hope is in anything that man can do, your hope will be disappointed. But if you are still and you know that the only hope you have is in God, you shall not be disappointed, not in the end. Isaiah shows us what Christian hope is. And do not misunderstand me. Christian hope is not a phony smile that says everything's okay. Christian hope is not a plastic kind of fake, well, just smile, God's on the throne, and everything's all right. Christian hope admits everything is not all right. There is devastation on this planet right now, but Christian hope knows why there is devastation on this planet, and Christian hope knows that a day is coming when that devastation will be no more, and only Christian hope knows that the difference maker is the cross and the empty tomb. This is what we know. This is what we know. This is why our mission is not to go out into the world and proclaim to everybody, everything's all right, just join a church. Our mission is to go into the world and admit with those to whom we speak, everything's not all right, but there is a way for you to have a certain hope for the future and to share Jesus with them. And so if I'm talking about prophecy in Isaiah 2, I want to talk for a couple of minutes about our mission because Isaiah 2 reminds me of our mission, making and training disciples who make and train disciples because Isaiah 2 verses 2 and 3 sound to me a lot like Matthew 28, 18 to 20, but there's a, there's a strange twist to it. Isaiah 2, 2 and 3 sound a lot like going into the world and making and training disciples. But the twist is God's people stand on top of the mountain and the world comes in to them. It's almost an inversion of the Great Commission, which is marvelous to behold. Instead of the church laboring uphill 
it shall come to pass in the latter days that all the sinners in the world will labor uphill to get in to the church. Not what we see in our day. This is an astonishing reversal. We had a congregational meeting last uh, a week ago to talk about the land development project and uh, donating part of our property to the village of Mount Pleasant for a park. And one of the questions, one of the really good questions that came up in our congregational meeting was, well, when these 300 plus housing units surround us, what, how are we going to reach them? What's our plan to reach them? That's a great question. Uh, we don't have an exact plan yet because the houses haven't been built yet, but we do need a plan to reach them. And when those houses are built, we're going to have to walk out our doors, go through, knock on their doors, invite them, give them something, be kind to them. But here in Isaiah 2, see, it's reversed. It says that on that day, the mountain of the Lord will be established and all the nations shall flow to it and all the people shall come and say, hey, how do we get in on the mountain of the Lord? Until Christ comes back, water doesn't flow uphill. But as soon as he gets here, it sure does. Calvinists, like me, call this irresistible grace. Sinners are, they, they, they're just magnetized to get to the Savior. But even here, you see how he says in verse 2, all the nations shall flow to it, but also the human will is involved because he says in verse 3, and many shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Oh, they are irresistibly compelled to come, but they themselves want to come. Would you note, too, about our mission, how exclusive and narrow it is and how inclusive and wide it is. Verse 2, one Lord, one mountain, one way. Exclusive. No idols, no human pride, no human sinfulness, only holiness, only submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice how inclusive it is all the nations and many peoples. It is inclusive of every human being. It is exclusive because the only way is the living God and no other idol. But it is inclusive because everyone is invited to come. You know, as a church, we, we, uh, we gather for the exaltation of God in worship and for the edifying of one another. But then when we leave this place, we're supposed to do that third work of evangelism. Evangelism is not the primary purpose that we gather on Sunday morning, but it's the primary purpose that we live out there Monday through Saturday. And if, like me, you think about this and you say, personally, I'm not doing enough for the work of evangelism. I feel that way. If you agree personally, can I just throw at you in two minutes or less four steps you ought to take and you ought to set a clock on yourself and you ought to take these four steps in the next 14 days. I'm nice, so I'm not just giving you one week, I'm giving you two weeks to get them done. First, pick one RBC missionary and send them some money. If it's $5, that's fine. God blesses the widow's might. If for some of you it's $5,000, that's fine too. But Pick an RBC missionary, email them, and send them some money and show your support for taking the gospel a long way away where they haven't heard of Jesus yet. 
Second, pick one family member. Maybe it's an extended family member. Maybe it's a great aunt or a cousin. Pick a, pick a family member who might not be a Christian or who if they are a Christian, it's not really clear if they're a Christian because they're really struggling. And reach out to them. Not to judge them, but to say you're praying for them, to send them a Bible verse. Just reach out to them. Third, same thing, but pick one acquaintance in the workplace, on your street, at a business that you always frequent and you always get the same server or the same, the same person ringing up your groceries at Aldi or whatever. Pick one acquaintance and invite them to church. Share a Bible verse with them. Just reach out to them with something of the love of Jesus. And then fourth, so we got missionary, family member, acquaintance, and fourth is the fun one. Ask God to bump you into a stranger and watch what happens. Ask God, say, bump me into somebody that I've never met before and give me an open door for me to share Jesus with them and watch what happens. It's so fun when you get to do that. But our, our mission and evangelism, and as we talk about our mission, if I could mention one more thing because it should be mentioned in our day of confusion about racism and critical race theory and all the rest, watch how multinational God's people are and how there's absolutely no place for any sort of racial vanity or vainglory. You see how he says, it's the one mountain is established and all the nations shall flow to it. And everyone says, let us go to the living God, the house of Jacob. God's true people will become a people of every nation and tribe and tongue. And we need to hear this and we need to rejoice in this. This is a huge point for Isaiah. Isaiah had no room for ethnocentrism or, or racial vainglory or racism. It, he had no room for it in his prophecy. Listen to Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 8. Isaiah 56, verse 3. He says, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who chose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give him in my house with walls, a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. And he says in Isaiah 56, verse 6, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servant everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it. I will bring them to my holy mountain and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. See, there are still nations and tribes and tongues, but all people are united in the worship of Jesus. It's not even that the differences disappear. It's that the differences are beautiful, but the appearance of unity and the, not just appearance, but the substantive, like, ontological reality of unity is ours in belonging to Jesus, first and foremost and best. And we need to hear this. I think one of the most beautiful passages in the Old Testament is Isaiah 25. If you turn there, because we're in Isaiah 2, it may take eight years to get to Isaiah 25. I just want to at least read it before I die. And it, this is one of, I think this is one of the most beautiful passages in, in, in all the scripture. Isaiah 25, verse 6. Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast. 
Oh, the Lord of hosts is going to put on the apron. Serve. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of the best well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord we waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Isaiah says there's a veil that is spread over all the nations and we fight with each other and we're uh, to use the modern term racist toward each other and we're greedy toward each other. And the day is coming when that will end. Well, it has ended as any type of acceptable behavior in the church of God. So as a church, while we say clearly we have no need of ungodly worldly philosophies like critical race theory, as a church, we reject and if need be, we repent of any racism ever on our part or any selfish laziness or indifference toward anyone who's different than us, either socially or economically or ethnically. Because this is the will of God, that all people come to Jesus Christ. And for this end we give, to this end we pray, to this end we go and we share. So from prophecy to mission, and third in Isaiah 2, let me show you these words of hope and humility. Let me show you these words of hope and humility. In Isaiah 2, verse 4, we are promised peace. No more swords, no more war, perfect peace. And then what happens is Isaiah 6 through verse 22 show us why we don't have peace. And the reason is because we don't have humility. The reason is because we don't have humility. We have pride. So picking it up, I guess, in verse 11... Let's read on through. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains and all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify this earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship. They will cast them away to the moles and the bats, and they'll enter the caverns of rocks and the clefts of the cliffs before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. So church, stop regarding man 
in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Isaiah 2, 1 through 4 is this precious promise of peace. Isaiah 2, 6 through 22 is an explanation of why we never have peace on earth. What is the cause of every conflict? The cause of every conflict is pride. That's why he says in verse 9, man is humbled and each one is brought low. That's why he says in verse 11, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low. The lofty pride of men shall be humbled. That's why he says in verse 12, the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty. That's why he says in verse 17, the haughtiness of man will be humbled. The lofty pride of men will be brought low. What causes, what causes every conflict? From the simple, from the simple selfishness that happened in your kitchen last night when you finished the ice cream and you didn't care that nobody else got any, to the way we scream and yell at each other when we're driving down Spring Street and somebody's only going 32 instead of 45, to the conflict that is right now threatening to split Christian marriages in this very church to the international conflict that we see in European Union, NATO, Russia, Ukraine. What's the cause? The cause is pride that says, I want that. Married to a haughtiness that says, because I want that, I am going to get that no matter what. So that what then would be the solution? The solution would be a humility that has a vision of God that actually enables me to become the kind of person who says, I don't belong to myself, I belong to God. And if I'm ever going to use the, the phrase, I want or I need, I'm going to use it in light of, I want that because God wants it for me. I need that because God tells me to get it. And so there's a humility and an obedience in all that we do. You know, in the Hebrew, or even in the English, you don't really catch it. But the, the key word actually is the word full in verse 6. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east. And then he repeats that word in verse 7. Their land is filled with silver and gold. And then he repeats that word in verse 8. Their land is filled with idols. Let us remember this. You are in the most danger when you are filled with everything you think you want. Church can be, a church can be full of people. A church can be full of money. A church can be full of activity. And that could be the worst, most ungodly church on the planet. Oh, for an emptiness of self that says the only thing, the, the only fullness that I desire is the fullness of the living spirit of God. The only fullness I desire is the fullness of the living spirit of Jesus in me. Again and again, Isaiah makes this point. When humans fill themselves with anything but God, when humans puff themselves up in significance with anything but the fact that God has called them by name, then their puff gets popped and they fizzle down. 
God smashes human pretensions over and over. Human huffing and puffing always ends up in humans being blown away. Human grasping and climbing always ends up with you flailing and falling down. Human pretensions to greatness. Here, he says twice here, that the humans who are the greatest, they're going to throw all their most valuable things to the spiders and the bats, and they're going to run into the caves and never come out. Most certainly, the haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. The hub of the problem is pride and pride only ever has one outcome. It's unavoidable. That's why like even in verse six where he says you have rejected your people. Uh, you know, to put this from the character of God, it's, it's not that God loved his people one day and God stopped loving his people the next day. It's that God has said, how many times? God has said dozens of times, the proud will be humbled and I'm opposed to the proud. And if you place yourself in that place of pride, what would you expect? But God's rejection if you're unredeemed or at a minimum, God's severe discipline if you are his. And so humility is the blessing don't you wonder, I wonder if I'm the only one that popped this, if you, know your, if you know your Bible, doesn't Isaiah 2 sound like a, the, the, the wonderful inverse image of Babel? At the Tower of Babel, all the people gathered to make a monument to how great man is. Not a good idea. Here, the Lord descends to Mount Zion and all the people of every nation, they flock into Mount Zion with one passion beating on their hearts and one song streaming out of their lips. How great is the lamb who was slain for us. And so throughout the chapter, God condemns pride. So church, do not be surprised when God says in the concluding verse of the chapter, stop regarding man. Stop fearing man. There are two appeals basically in the chapter, verse 5 and verse 22. Oh, house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord and then stop regarding man. Verse 5, when you have a vision of the light of the Lord, then, verse 22, what he can do or what she can do or what this person or that person can do becomes so small, so relatively small. When you behold your God, you stop regarding man. And so I would say stop fearing man. Is, the, is fearing people a problem for you? I'd say stop fearing people. And in an effort to be helpful, I'd just give you two words to remember. First, replace. That is, if you're going to stop fearing man, replace the fear of man with the fear of the Lord. Replace the inner question, what do those people think of me? Replace that with a different inner question. What has God said about me? This is, this is to live gospel-centric. What has God declared about me in the gospel? This is true Christian security. 
The best book I've read on this is one by Ed Welch, which has a good title, When People Are Big and God is Small. It's about overcoming the fear of man. And in addition to the word replace, would you let me use an overused word? I'd give you the word balance. Because uh, there are, we've already talked about this, there are so many crazy things happening in the world that you wouldn't be crazy to be afraid of them. There, There really are. But the issue is balance. I want to address the very real danger. I was at lunch with somebody who doesn't go to, doesn't go to church here recently, and they asked me, what's a, what's a, what's a uh, concern or a danger for the people in your church? And this is what I, I didn't even, it's one of those conversations where I didn't even know I, I knew this until I said it to this person that was asking this. I say, you know what danger is that our good church members, they're being catechized 18 hours a week by the news and the internet and talk radio. And I preach to them for 45 minutes once on a Sunday. This is what I mean by this word balance. There's nothing wrong with watching the news. There's nothing wrong with playing video games. All the middle schoolers just woke up. There's, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. But it is an issue of balance. It's an issue of salt. You ever, you use the salt to flavor the, the meat. You ever, I have done this, you ever use way too much salt in the meat? I've done that more than once. And I know it's more than once because I've done that with nice, gentle people at the table and I've done that with people like you at the table. So what happens is I put too much salt in the meat. And so if people are nice and gentle, they're like, ooh, wow, you weren't afraid to flavor this. And if people are just more blunt like you, they're like, what happened? This tastes awful. I can't gag this down. Did the top fall off and all the salt from Sam's Club went into this thing? What happened? It's an issue of balance. Look at your life. Is there too much, just too much? News, internet, video game, whatever it is. Is there balance? Is there balance? Can you say that Could you actually say that for every hour watching the news, you're going to spend an hour in prayer? Could you actually say that for every 20 minutes just doom scrolling on your phone about how wrong everybody is, that you'd spend 20 minutes saying something encouraging to a sister or a brother in Christ? You have that balance that if you're, if, for, for whatever, whatever time this hobby gets, I'm going to devote that time to serving in the church. Let, let what people say about you and what's going on in the world, it is important. But don't let it be what you regard first and foremost before you give regard to the living God. Because prophets like this call us to live now in the light of the certain future. That opening phrase It shall come to pass in the latter days. It hasn't happened yet. But the whole point is that we walk by faith and we believe that it will. Let me tell you, this this could summarize Isaiah 2 for me. And I do this with trepidation because to tell you this, I have to tell you something that bothers me. That is one of my pet peeves. And I know that every time I admit this to you out loud, you people repeatedly do the things that bother me just because you think that's funny and affectionate toward me, even though it proves that you're twisted and messed up. 
But be that as it may, something that drives me nuts is when you treat church as nice but insignificant. Something that drives me batty is when you treat church as something good and nice but not actually, truly important. It would be as simple as saying this, as I'm standing in the lobby and we're leaving. Wow, that, that was a wonderful Sunday service. Great singing, great to hear the baptisms, great preaching, pastor, that was great. But now we have to leave and go back to real life. No, no. I'm pleading with you a thousand times, no. This is real life. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of our God. And there is a day that is coming when he will beat every weapon of war into cups and he will put into them the, the most well-aged wine when he puts on the apron to give us a feast with all people. That is reality. And that's what we are to experience when we sing and when we baptize and when I preach. And when we leave here, we do go into a real world. But we go into a real world that is passing away and shall not endure forever. Get that. And you have the vision that Isaiah would have for you. Let's pray. Lord God, in this moment, give us a vision of that day. Lord God, now in worship, remind us and convince us that the world is passing away, but the one who does the will of the Father in cleaving to the Son abides forever. Lord, we would lift up to you uh, hands and hearts that are unclean, and we would ask for your cleansing. We would lift up to you a church that needs to grow in mission and in zeal. And we'd ask you to provide those things by your Holy Spirit. Even now as we turn our eyes and our hearts back to you, we ask you to give us a vision of who you are and what you've called us to. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.